My name is Marsha Lucas, and I edited Star Wars. I will tell you one thing about the editing, was I had edited movies for my husband, George Lucas. I had edited American Graffiti. I'd been his assistant on his first movie, THX 1138. And then when we were in London filming Star Wars, I was never designated to be a film editor of the movie. But then he had an English editor that was working with him, and he kept coming home and being very unhappy. And eventually, George had kind of decided that he didn't want to bring the English editor back to the United States, and he asked me if I would edit the movie. And that's how I came to edit Star Wars. But if there was anything that was dramatic or emotional, George gave it to Marcia. And George always said, <laughs> he said, always keep one person whose opinion you trust to the very end. And that was always Marcia. Right. Marcia has always been the family of the Lucasfilm family. Always has been. 40 years later, it's hard for me to believe that Star Wars is still alive, is still vibrant, is still everything that George wanted it to be and everything that I helped him and supported him to make it be. I, I got stuck editing the end, end battle in Star Wars for many months <laughs> and we brought in two more wonderful editors. And I always worked in a team and we had a great team and we made a great movie. It was really fun. We had a lot of adventures. We had a lot of good times. fans and move milkers everywhere welcome to episode number 112 of blast points this is jason and it's gabe and as you heard in the opening there we're going to be talking about one of the greatest secrets of star wars history the mysterious marcia lucas the secretest of the secret sauce of star wars <laughs> the ultimate unsung hero of star wars but first if you can believe it there is some Last Jedi stuff to talk about. Get drama. Beautiful. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Last Jedi. Yeah, the Blu-ray is coming fast and hot and soon. And the digital version even faster and more intensely, more extremely. Which there's so many good bonus features it's going to be hard to wait for the for the actual disc this time i'm i might get sucked into the digital version i don't know it's coming out what like march 11th digital and like what the 27th on like physical blu-ray copy thing yeah that sounds right so first of all there's a what they're saying a feature length documentary the director and the jedi which is about like Ryan Johnson and an intimate and personal journey through the production of the movie. That sounds extra crazy too. Cause isn't Ryan Johnson saying something like they just had mics on everybody all the time. I feel like it's more maybe like beginning style where it's like, they're just filming the movie and they're recording what's going on. And it's not like as much like the force awakens one where it was interviews after the fact kind of stuff. We can hope that the, this documentary gets near the perfection of Star Wars documentaries that were on the the prequel releases. Just last week there was the what on the ABC what was it called the Force of Sound documentary? Yeah. Where that 
was very personal, very intimate, and it reminded me of the kind of stuff we would get on the the prequel releases. Yeah, I liked how where they kind of I don't know they take their time and like you know it starts with someone just walking in the country looking at chickens <laughs> <laughs> and before they easy into the crazy. Those chickens that just live on Skywalker Ranch are the luckiest chickens of all time. Yeah, if only we could be those chickens. I've written letters, emails to Lucasfilm asking if I can interview the chickens. No reply. (laughs) So another documentary, The Balance of the Force, explore the mythology of the Force and why Ryan Johnson chose to interpret its role in in such a unique way. Hmm? Yeah, maybe get some uh, hints into what the Ryan Johnson trilogy will be. Scene breakdowns, lighting the spark, creating the space battle. This next one, though. Yeah, this is worth the Blu-ray purchase, I think, just for this one. Snoke and Mirrors. Motion capture and Star Wars collide as the filmmakers take us through the detailed process of creating the movie's malevolent master villain. Where that will play also kind of along with another feature on here called Andy Circus Live. Where they'll show you two exclusive sequences from the movie featuring Andy Circus's riveting, raw, on-set performance. There's a video going around. I think it's just on Twitter, isn't it? I couldn't find it on YouTube, which I think is a clip from that, which is Andy Serkis with the dots on his face doing the scene with Ray pre-CG. But the best part is he has a giant Snoke size rubber arm that he's like grabbing her face with, which is super, super Amazing, and I, it's got to be where all the rumors about them building a giant Snoke puppet came from. Between that and when Snoke's corpse is laying down, like those must be like the big rubber Snokes that people thought were going to be a puppet. And it almost looks like they kept the arm in the shot. Like it might not even be CG. It might actually be the rubber arm in the movie. Oh, <laughs> I can't figure out why I can't go to Toys R Us and buy a giant Snoke hand. Just run around touching people in the face with it. Oven mitts, car scrapers. You're having a bad day. I can bring the Snoke hand and just touch your face. (laughs) They're missing out. It could be the new Wookiee mask. Everybody wanted the Wookiee talking mask. Now everyone's going to want the Snoke hand. If you're riding a bicycle and you've got to do the turn signal with your hand, what better way to do it than with a big rubber Snoke hand? Go through the drive-thru and just pay with quarters. Stick the snow can into the window and drop your change. (laughs) What, What could have been? There's another featurette on uh, the showdown at Crate, which going into the visual effects of Crate, designing the crystal foxes and much more. Uh, There's an audio commentary which promises to be probably fascinating, hopefully, we can imagine. And we don't have to wait for the second release this time, which is great. But probably most interesting is 14 deleted scenes. Knowing there's 14 deleted scenes would have us in a frenzy enough, but we know the names of them now. So according to some Australian website, and boy, the names are good. So we have alternate opening. What does that mean? What's the alternate opening? If it's the one in the art book of uh, Finn in the bubble helmet after the crawl, <laughs> if there's footage of that, sign me up. Up next, Paige's gun jams. More of Paige and like the uh, her little gunner pod, probably. Yeah. So a little more of the space battle there. Um, then next we have Luke has a moment, which I have no idea what that's going to be. Even if it's just Luke trying to remember where he put his keys. <laughs> it's totally fine with me. Uh, Poe, not much of a sewer. Hmm. So what do you think that's going to be? Something early in the movie. No clue. Yeah, that one is, is kind of has me stumped as far as where or what that could be. Unless there's a sewer on the... On the ship? Hopefully it's more Poe more po jokes. He just flies to another ship, tells a joke. Knock, knock. <laughs> yes. Captain Kennedy. Who's there? Uh, yeah, unfortunately, I don't think any of these are more Captain Kennedy scenes. 
I wish there was a deleted scene. Cap- uh, just Captain Kennedy's day. Just his morning before Last Jedi happens. He gets up. Everything's going great. Maybe he wins the lottery on the way to work. I won the bloody lottery. <laughs> up next. It, it's kind of weird you recorded that. Hmm. Yeah, another mystery one. Is it one of the droids? Is it is it Poe talking to BB-8? Peasy? Oh, I hope it's Peasy. It's just Peasy talking to a medical droid, and one of them like taped over the other one's soap operas. Just recorded an episode of uh, Judge Judy. It's kind of weird you recorded that. No one records Judge Judy. <laughs> you know it on again at 7 p.m. <laughs> You are about to enter the courtroom of Judge Judith Scheindlin. The people are real. The cases are real. The rulings are final. This is Judge Judy. Uh, next one, the caretaker sizes up Ray. Hmm. Hopefully that one's 20 minutes. Actually, I hope all of these are 20 minutes. Why, why would you cut any caretaker business out of the film? I mean, I get it, but also, why? People are going to complain anyway. The movie, they should have just made it four hours long. <laughs> it doesn't matter. At this point, everyone knows how they feel. It's not like these, blue, these deleted scenes are making or breaking it for people. But yeah, the next one, that's the one we've been stretching for. The extended village sequence. Probably the one we saw the footage of, right? Of Ray running around. We might see R2-D2 with a necklace on. We could see Chewbacca dancing. Yeah, he might be doing the limbo. <laughs> you know, I I didn't think about that. If if there's Chewie dancing and we kind of got denied big screen Chewie dancing after all these years, there better be some Chewie dancing in Solo to make up for it. Better be. Who cares about the Kessel Run? I just want to see Chewie dancing again. Dear Ron Howard. Chewie dancing. Confirm or deny. You have 10 seconds. We would like to know the history of Chewie's dance moves. Who taught him those moves? Next one, extended father chase, which that, you know, that could be. The spa on Canto Bite. I think you're right. It's the massage scene. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, this might be the most intense Star Wars video release yet. We'll have to watch it in a bathtub full of ice. So I'm going to have to cue it up, push play, set my phone in front of it on Skype, and then go somewhere else and watch it through Skype. <laughs> <laughs> Because seeing it for real in the same room is going to be too much. <laughs> all, yeah, all of these just seem like worth their weight in gold. Like I might have to go to the bank and get some actual like gold coins to pay for the Blu-ray with. It needs to be a special purchase. Open up a briefcase of gold bars at Target. Yeah. I would like one less Jedi Blu-ray, please. Do you take gold bars? Up next, uh, Mega Destroyer Incursion, which do you think that's them sneaking around the the Snoke's Star Destroyer, all that stuff? Snoke's boudoir? Yeah, I think that's that. So more Rose, Rose and Finn and uh, DJ. More DJ lines. Maybe. Yeah, man. Up next, uh, Rose bites the hand that taunts her. Hmm. Is it really Rose biting someone's hand? That'd be weird. Yeah, maybe it's really Rose bites the hand of a Tauntaun and they just spelled it wrong. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. It's Last Jedi, you know? Anything goes. What do we got next? Phasma squealed like a whoop hog? What? <laughs> just, you know, I, when I read that, it was it was kind of refreshing because it was almost like for almost for a minute there, I forgot that Ryan Johnson was insane. It's been, a, you know, it's been a while since Last Jedi. We've had time to kind of let it sink in and, you know... It was kind of nice to be reminded that maybe that's a line in the movie, maybe, that was cut out. That he's like, hey, maybe I was going too far. There's a scene where Snoke is talking about how Phasma squealed like a whoop hog. <laughs> uh, up next, Rose and Finn go to where they belong. I almost wonder if that's them flying, like if there was a shot of them flying the shuttle back to Crate. That could be. Yeah, because that's pretty... That's a pretty quick cut in the 
theatrical version from them escaping and crashing. Maybe there's another, they have some dialogue or something in there. Still talking about whoop hogs. <laughs> the, the whole part is, is like, can you believe he called her a whoop hog? Uh, up next, Ray and Chewie in the Falcon, which is always good. And then lastly, weirdly, it doesn't sound like a deleted scene, the costumes and creatures of Canto Bite. This just seems like them taunting us. They're going to go through all the creatures, and then at the end, we're going to see that G897 was there. And just as he's about to start walking, they're going to cut away. <laughs> he left holding hands with Master Codebreaker. And it does look like they're being a little weird with the special features being different, but I think only Target has different stuff this time because um, Target has a, an extra special feature on Porgs. Oh. So if you like the Porgs, you might want to get it at Target. If you don't like Porgs, then you're safe everywhere else. Well, it's like I was saying earlier. I mean, we I feel like we judge every Star Wars home video release against the glory days of the prequels when it was like it took you a week to watch all the bonus features on those discs especially attack of the clones that was insane it's not like the rogue one or the force awakens discs were shabby but this sounds pretty good yeah a little bit beefier and as much as yeah we like to complain about that really you had three years of, of time to kill to watch those special features or now it's like we got two weeks to watch these and then we're going to be watching solo. So it's maybe it's good that there's not too much on the Blu-ray to get behind. Once there's 15 new Star Wars movies, you'll never be able to get caught up. So. Exciting as all that Last Jedi stuff is, there was some talk of episode nine. train party train keeps going episode nine news is starting so jj abrams was on the stephen colbert show and he revealed that they've got a script for nine and filming is going to begin in late july i believe he said we uh we have a script what which is a big deal for me um doesn't it start shooting this summer it starts shooting uh end of july okay yeah so yeah. script would be handy so yeah. it's, uh, but I'm, I'm writing this with Chris Terrio, who's a, a genius, and I'm having a great time. It's kind of big news, especially with the scripts seem to come together quickly. So maybe they are able to salvage a lot from the, the Trevorrow days. Because, man, I feel like, remember, well, I guess we'll see once they start filming, because Force Awakens, they had a script. And then uh, when they took their break, right, they were still working on the script. So they start filming at the end of July. They film for probably, what, like three, four months. That'll give them about a year, a little over a year of post-production after like probably a holiday break. It seems about what Last Jedi ended up. So, yeah, everything goes smoothly. It's just it was crazy to think about, like, before you know it, we're going to be start seeing helicopter spy photos of like. Ray and Kylo and Finn and all that again. And I was just like, man, how in the world do you follow up The Last Jedi? I think, I, yeah, I'm potentially the most curious about where the next Star Wars movie is going to go that maybe I've ever been. <laughs> because Last Jedi left it so kind of up in the air what they can do. They can do anything. Um, and how are they going to yeah, end a trilogy? You know, and I was thinking back too. do you remember it wasn't that long ago? Wasn't Kathleen Kennedy on the on the Star Wars show talking about how they were talking about the future beyond nine and the continuing adventures of the new characters? 
you know, we're sitting down now, we're talking about the next 10 years of Star Wars stories, and we're looking at narratively where that might go. Future stories beyond Episode Nine with these new characters, Ray, Poe, Finn, BB-8. But we're also looking at working with people that are interested in coming into the Star Wars world and taking us to places that we haven't been yet. And that's exciting, too, because it's a vast galaxy far, far away. It's so, yeah, they have so much going on now. Maybe, I mean, they got to wait to tell us or all the fans will die. It's like if you have a goldfish and you just feed it too much, it'll just keep eating and then it'll explode. (laughs) (laughs) So they can only give us a few flakes every couple of months. I just can't even imagine what is going to be going on in nine. It's like it's the craziest thing to think about. I I know we've said it before, but like at eight, you could be like, well, you know, the island and the the Jedi training and stuff. But like, who even knows? Well, in episode seven and eight, really, we're only like, what, a week of time? They're going to have to jump ahead, right? And if they jump ahead, like, are they going to be able to get you caught up to what's happened? And uh, yeah, I really, I don't know. I've, I hope there's nine, 10, 11, 12, do it. Or maybe it'll just be four hours and they'll just say, hey. We know people are going to complain either way. So why are we even trying to not make, why are we trying to cut it down? This movie's four and a half hours long. If you don't want to see it, that's cool. You can miss out. There should just be a written thing before the beginning of nine and be like, I hope all you people that said you're not going to go see the next one are honest about it. Cause we got real weird with this. Instead of a poster, it's just a big like warning. 10 minutes in, there's some crazy stuff that you've never seen before. You might pass out. 25 minutes in, you might not like Star Wars after this. 45 minutes in, take a drink of some water because you're going to need it. Hour and 15 minutes in, we're going to stop the movie for 10 minutes so you can go outside and get some air. In the last half hour, the movie has no sound or picture. <laughs> Don't be alarmed. The movie will just keep going in your in your brain. Uh, yeah. So JJ was sitting there on the Stephen Colbert show and I was trying to stare into his eyes. Trying to get the secrets, trying to be if I could connect with him through the TV. Oh, I'm getting excited. I think I think JJ's going to do a really good job. I think the, the pressure's on. I think he's going to rise to the pressure. Well, no, yeah, I think the pressure is on, and I think the shock and bizarreness that he must have felt with doing Star Wars Episode Seven, and the 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 pressure he felt with doing that of. You know, this $4 billion investment and from the studio and the fans and the everybody. And now it's kind of like, hey, you're just making another Star Wars movie. Now he knows what he's doing. He figured it all out. Now he can uh, just have fun with it. ILM in London and Neil Scanlon's Creature Department, he that was all built up for Force Awakens. And now it's like it's 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 a whole machine. It's a factory. Yeah, it's exciting. Well, it's exciting to think even like with uh, either the prequels or the original trilogy, like once they get the machine rolling, just how much they can push each movie and how much just wilder and crazier they can get. Star Wars Episode Nine, wild and crazy. It's Black Diamond. (laughs) Paul Stanley's flying Leia's ship. I don't know how to fly it. (laughs) We need the power of rock and roll. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Star Wars posters at Burger Chef. R2-D2, hurry up. That's right. Four posters featuring the stars of Star Wars are at Burger Chef. <laughs> We'd like a Star Wars poster, please. R2, it's our lucky day. It's us. Just buy a large serving of Coca-Cola for 49 cents at participating Burger Chefs, and a Star Wars poster is yours to control. There are four spectacular full-color Star Wars posters in all, so start your collection today. Artu, I think we'd better leave. Star Wars posters, only at Burger Chef, while supplies last.
think it was May of 2002. I was working a book signing event with uh, David West Reynolds, who at that time had written the visual dictionaries for the Star Wars original trilogy and the Phantom Menace and the Attack of the Clones visual dictionary, which had just come out. And David West Reynolds, he was signing at, at a museum in Ann Arbor. And I was, yeah, like I said, I was working the event for him, which I was totally excited about because I was a huge fan of his visual dictionaries. And he got done with his little presentation, and I had him sign my Star Wars visual dictionaries. And pretty much I was just sitting with him at this table. And the museum was empty. All the people had left. And I, was, I, I started telling him how excited I was for Attack of the Clones. I was like, oh, I can't. I cannot wait for episode two. You know, it's going to be so great. And this visual dictionary you did just got me even more pumped up. And he looked at me square in the eyes and he said, let me tell you something. It's terrible. <laughs> and I was like, what? No. How could that be? Like you wrote the visual dictionary. So he started to tell me at this time about Marsha Lucas and I had no clue. I think I had known that George Lucas was married. He was divorced and he had these kids. And that's why he was single, blah, 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 blah. But I didn't know anything about any details. And he said, yep, she was the true spirit of Star Wars. And when they got divorced, it was done. And you can feel it in the new movies. You could feel it in episode one. And you can, and he said, in episode two is even worse. And this, this kind of hurt my soul a little bit because back then and still today, I love those movies. I love them a lot. I love them just as much, if not more, than some of the original trilogy. So I was kind of like, you know, like I am now, I wasn't about to get mad at somebody who didn't like the prequels, just kind of like, whatever. But he started to go on. He's like, well, well, let me tell you a story. He's like, you know, the ending of Rares of the Lost Ark, when they're walking down the steps of the building and, you know, fools, bureaucratic fools, and, you know, a drink when Marion tips up the top of Indy's hat. That wasn't in the movie originally. He said they screened it at Lucasfilm, and Marsha was the one who said you need some sort of emotional moment at the end for Indian Marion, and you can't just leave them tied to a pole after the arc has blown up. And I guess that scene was in the script, but they all decided, no, the, the, the opening of the arc is the way we should end it. That's a big enough ending as it is, and we don't need that scene. We don't need to film it. We don't need to go to that set and do all that stuff. But she's unknown. You absolutely have to do that. The audience needs that moment. And I was like, well, yeah, of course they do. You know, it's like, you know, you need a breather after that moment of the arc opening. And that, so that whole conversation I had with David, David West Reynolds back then in 2002 really got me thinking, like, wow, you know, as much as I do, I love the prequels. I don't think anyone that even that, that loves the prequels would deny that they... Maybe they are a little different than the original trilogy. Maybe there is a bit of a, a human element missing in them that was in the original trilogy. I love them for what they are, and I love the original trilogy for what they are, but sure, I could see that. Which then that got me thinking, well, what, you know, even back then, well, what was the deal with Marsha Lucas, and why haven't we ever heard too much about her? What's the story with that? Yeah, it's, I mean, to this day, it's still somewhat. I mean, the information is out there, but it's kind of a little mystery and hearsay. And I don't even remember. Yeah, the first time I really heard about Marsha Lucas, probably when you told me about that meeting. <laughs> and then Attack of the Clones is supposed to be terrible. I think I, call, I, I called you that night. I'm sure you did. Yeah. I've just heard a terrible truth. <laughs> <laughs> David West Reynolds told me Attack of the Clones might not be good. Yeah. But again, I, and I feel like it's not too many fans know about her. Um, if you look in the Rinsler books for the making of uh, New Hope, Empire, and Jedi, she's barely mentioned. She's in there, but she's barely ever mentioned. And it really wasn't until Michael Kaminsky's uh, Secret History of Star Wars guy kind of did some digging, took a little bit from uh, Dale Pollock's Skywalking biography and combined a bunch of stuff and kind of put some stuff together on Marsha Lucas, who definitely seemed like she was an important figure in Star Wars and Lucasfilm history for a while. Not really talked about nowadays. Right. And people always talk about Gary Kurtz and how, oh, it's Gary Kurtz 
was the secret to the original trilogy. But looking at some of this, it seems like really, if if there was a secret ingredient, it was kind of Marsha and her relationship with Lucas, who was her husband. And you know, she was definitely the, if Gary Kurtz was the cream in the George Lucas coffee, Marsha was the, the sweet sugar that made everybody want to drink more. Yeah, she won the Oscar for Star Wars for editing with Paul Hirsch and Richard Chu. Lucas did not. Yeah, she is the only Lucas with an Oscar. The winners are Paul Hirsch, Marsha Lucas, and Richard Chu for Star Wars. She was born Marsha Griffin in the late 40s in Modesto, California. Same town as George Lucas. She grew up mostly with a single mom. As she was growing up, she took night courses in chemistry, worked in mortgage banking firm in L.A. She dated a guy that worked at a Hollywood museum where they would, at this Hollywood museum, get tons of like stock footage from other movies. And it sounded like she kind of started working on if, if somebody needed footage of like a sunset or something. She'd be like, oh, well, I can get that for you. And she kind of started to dabble in editing. Yeah, I think she applied for a job as a librarian, just happened to end up at a film library and kind of stumbled into film editing. So when she was just 20 years old, she was working as uh, an assistant editor. In the mid-1960s, breaking your way into the film industry, especially as a young woman, was pretty difficult. It was a very male-dominated industry. She would cut trailers but she would get a lot of abuse from a very male-dominated industry of, you know, what's this woman doing? This young girl thinking she can do this editing in tra- trailers. And it was Verna Fields, who was one of the only female film editors at the time, who hired Marsha in 1967 for a government film on Lyndon Johnson. And to to help with this government film, she brought in a bunch of students from USC and Marsha happened to get paired with some young weirdo named George Lucas. Who you may have heard of. Supposedly, she didn't like the, US, the USC people because they were all technical and by the book. And they didn't like her because she had no technical training. They were a little jealous of her, too, because she, was, she had been working professionally on and off for a year before Lucas met her. And he was still, you know, they're all trying to get in the union. And she was kind of a real editor, more so than the film students were. So there was some tension there. So she's working there with Lucas and he's being young George Lucas. He's not talking. Shy, introverted. I imagine she was probably trying to start conversations with George Lucas. Can only imagine how that would go. Do you like to eat food, George? I don't Maybe. I don't know what I I only eat potato chips. No, actually, he only ate Hershey bars and Coke, I believe, according to the George Lucas biography. Hershey bars and Coca-Cola was his diet of choice as a young, as a young man. That's the only thing that keeps me going. <laughs> yeah, I think that's all he ate through the entire original trilogy. Oh, good. My Hershey bars and Coke are here. Delicious. <laughs> Finally, somehow, George Lucas asked Marsha to go see like a film somewhere in San Francisco. And the two of them went on technically what was their first ever date. Drongo, see a movie with me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Playing the apes. I got Hershey bars and Cokes in my backseat. I can eat. <laughs> These are mine. You have to get your own. Sorry. Sorry. I said all I can eat. But supposedly in uh, in one of the books, it said Marsha said uh, that it was weeks before they had a serious conversation. But it does sound like as weird as Lucas was, they bonded over their love of, of film and filmmaking. And I think she liked the fact that he talked to her about films and things and not just, I guess, other weird stuff. <laughs> they, they had similar interests. Yeah. And it, and it seems like they were both extremely strong-willed, feisty people who had very strong opinions about things, and they they just connected. And I like how uh, before Marsha Lucas is quoted as saying the, the few women he dated in college were into a lot of dumb things. Lucas's friend at USC, uh, John Milius, wondered how the shy little George Lucas ever ended up with a woman like Marsha. <laughs> what do you say? We all wondered how little George got this great-looking girl. 
She was smart, too obsessed with films. She was a better editor than he was, yeah. If you are suffering as much as I am, please tell me. Uh, we live in a real world, George. Come back to it. I'm editing political films, and you're studying to be a film director. I can't breathe. <laughs> it all happened. So Marsha was working in commercial editing while George won scholarships and uh, interned on Francis Coppola's Finian's Rainbow. And then uh, Coppola hired Lucas for his next film, The Rain People. And then on a train during filming of The Rain People, George proposed to Marsha and they agreed to get married. I just like Lucas knew that it was she was the woman for him because she's he said she's the only person I've ever known who can make me raise my voice. Ah, (laughs) (laughs) I love you. (laughs) So things were going great at this period of time. She edited his his documentary filmmaker on February twenty second, nineteen sixty nine. Right around forty nine years ago, they got married. They had a wonderful honeymoon in Northern California. They bought a small house in Mill Valley, California. Marsha wanted kids. Lucas was worried about being able to afford it. And Lucas, meanwhile, was up trying to get American Zoetrope up going with Francis Coppola. Lucas makes THX 1138, and American Zoetrope completely crumbles. Marsha had a hand in editing THX 138, although she was very critical of the movie. Yeah, she never really warmed up to it. Yeah, it was too cold and not emotional enough for her. That was a pure Lucas movie. <laughs> So THX bombs, Zoetrope folds, they have all kinds of money problems, they're borrowing cash, trying to get out of debt. Coppola makes The Godfather to get out of debt. Marsha, to help with The Godfather, is uh, editing screen tests, and George Lucas did the newspaper montages for that. Uh, Marsha goes off and gets a job working uh, as an assistant editor for the Robert Redford movie The Candidate. Meanwhile, Lucas is... Starting up American Graffiti, which he kind of started almost, I feel like, on a dare from Marsha that she really wanted him to make something with some emotion that people could relate to. And Lucas, I think, hit back that, you know, emotion is easy. You just need to what film a puppy or something and people go, oh, it's cute, something like that. So kind of almost to prove her wrong or prove her right to prove something he decided to uh make american graffiti and do something very commercial in a way she was his mentor she had more experience than him she balanced out his bizarreness with a more human touch yeah i mean they even when they talked about their relationship back then would talk about that where um one thing marcia said is she always felt he was an, she was an optimist because she's extroverted and she always thought that George was more introverted, quiet and pessimistic and that the, the two of them kind of balanced each other out. They were the, the yin and yang of each other. George Lucas introverted and pessimistic? Never. Yeah. Never. <laughs> but they're kind of the, uh, the, the textbook opposites attracting. When it works, they balance each other out. But as time goes on, <laughs> it became harder and harder. So they cut American Graffiti in Francis Coppola's garage, and um, supposedly the first cut was incredibly long. Marsha took a crack at it, recut it on her own, while George Lucas was off doing sound design with uh, Walter Murch. When Graffiti was first screened, it was kind of Marsha's cut, trying to make sense of the, the crazy Lucas cut. Yeah, it sounds like... The Lucas cut didn't work, and Lucas and Merch did a lot more with the audio editing than necessarily the editing of the footage, right? So American Graffiti comes out. Huge hit. America is having a love affair with a movie, American Graffiti. Where were you in 62? Easily the best movie so far this year, New York Times. Sensationally funny, profoundly affecting, Los Angeles Times. A very exciting experience, Family Circle. Super fine, Time Magazine. Four stars, highest rating. By all means, go and enjoy it. New York Daily News. You'll love American Graffiti, rated PG. George and Marsha buy a new house which eventually becomes the business center of Lucasfilm for a time. And Lucas eventually says of American Graffiti, I made it for Marsha. <laughs> Although I think one of the best uh, 
Oh, I can't remember the exact quote, but when they started filming American Graffiti and Lucas was working with the director of photography about the look he wanted, how he wanted it real, like neon, like a jukebox. And I believe Marsha said something like, yeah, he wants it to look ugly. <laughs> I think was the quote, something like that. I think American Graffiti is an amazing looking movie, but wasn't that always the 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 complaint people would make about the prequels that there was no one telling George Lucas no and whether or not he listens to those people or not it's it is i in my opinion it is always still good to have someone close to you doubting you yeah well and someone you can trust too it's a hard thing to find Marsha goes off working with Martin Scorsese. She does, uh, Alice doesn't live here anymore. And Luke, Lucas begins writing his draft for this thing called the Star Wars. So he's got Luke flying on whales and King Koopa and Chief Chirpa and whatever the heck is going on in those early drafts. <laughs> uh, Martin Scorsese wanted Marsha to work on Taxi Driver. And, uh, you know, kind of around this time, there was lots of puzzlement around this group of Coppola and Scorsese and stuff. And, why Lucas wanted to follow up American Graffiti with this movie about uh, the Jedi Bendu and Kyber crystals. Well, and it, I think it seemed like there was some some tension in the relationship that was kind of always there, too, where Marsha was more. She wanted George to make like Scorsese movies where they're, you know, arty movies, experimental movies, movies that meant something. And, you know, George wanted to make robots in the desert and laser swords. You know, he wanted to make his flash his Flash Gordon nonsense. It's for 12-year-olds. They're going to love it. It's not for me. It's not for, well, it's maybe for me. <laughs> she did contribute a lot of stuff with the script, supposedly, where, according to legend, it was her idea to kill off Ben Kenobi. Um, the For What Kiss was her idea. Chewie growling at the... Um, the mouse droid. But then also, she was a big um, proponent to keep the bigs and... Cammy and the whole opening on Tatooine in the movie. It kind of makes sense from her perspective because she was she was the normal person going into this universe and pulling back George's weirdness. And I could see where a movie starting with humans talking, you know, acting normal might be easier for people to work their way into this crazy space world instead of immediately seeing two robots talking in a hallway. <laughs> so during the filming of Star Wars, supposedly George Lucas kept a photo of her taped inside his briefcase. Aww. She's the one that took him to the hospital when he had his heart attack. And then probably her biggest contribution on the original Star Wars was, uh, so Lucas had an, an editor in the UK, wasn't working out, didn't want to bring this editor back over from the UK to the US. And they had to get the trench run, an edit of the trench run done so ilm could start their work because that was probably the most heavy duty and important effects part of the entire movie so she kind of spearheaded getting the whole trench run figured out and supposedly the original version of the trench run had luke making two passes at the death star trench where he misses it the first time and then goes back around and does it a second time. It was Marsha's idea, supposedly, to trim this down to just one trench run. Because what was she had a quote that about Han coming in? The moment Han uh, comes to save the day, if people what don't stand up and cheer, the movie doesn't work. Something like that, which is true. Well, and that's interesting that she had so much um, to say about that because remember when um, there was all the talk with Michael Arndt doing the script? I think Michael Arndt. One of the things he was kind of known for was giving a talk about how great the script for A New Hope was and how that part of the movie is so great because kind of all the storylines resolve at that one moment. And it's one of the reasons that the movie just feels so good at the end because Luke succeeds and Han comes back and Darth Vader's defeated. It like it all builds to that one moment. You had a big part in making that feel the way it does. We try and think you take these the influence of Marsha Lucas out of a new hope. If Luke did two trench runs, would Ben Kenobi have died? I don't know. That would have been a pretty different movie. Yeah. Well, it would have been uh, not as fast and not as intense either. <laughs> yeah. And especially if you go back and watch some of the, some of the footage on was empire dreams, some of the rough cut stuff. There was uh, the editors, there was a lot of editing magic in that movie and, 
yeah, she was there kind of helping figure out the Star Wars formula, really. Star Wars comes out. Some people like it. It does okay. Life in general becomes a lot more intense for George Lucas. So Marsha still really wants a family. But meanwhile, life is getting crazy. The dream of Skywalker Ranch is coming. Kind of Lucas doing what American Zoetrope could never do, starting his own kind of film production facility. There's no stopping Empire. It's got to get going. Rares the Lost Ark is gearing up. Yeah, and Lucas is always saying he's going to pull back. He's, he's hiring other people to make Empire. That never works out. He's always dissatisfied. He always ends up having to be there. His bad influence, Steven Spielberg's always getting him to make an indie movie in between Star Wars movies. Empire goes over budget. There's tensions with Gary Kurtz. Lucas gets an ulcer. Marsha maybe does some editing on that movie. Marsha takes over a lot of stuff with running Lucasfilm while Lucas is off trying to reel in Empire. They're going over the designs of Skywalker Ranch. Pretty much Lucas is constantly working. Constantly. Sometime in 1981, they find the time to adopt Amanda. But also around that time, Jedi is getting going. And as we talked about in the Richard Marquand episode, it was always his intention. And he's like, well, Empire didn't work out the way I did where I was supposed to chill and be more hands-off. But Jedi, this time, I'll really be real chill and real hands-off. This Marquand guy, he's got it covered. Nothing to worry about. Yeah, surprise, surprise. It didn't work out that way. Go back and listen to our Richard Marquand episode. Skywalker Ranch is being built. The stained glass windows are going up with this guy, Tom Rodriguez, doing them. And Marsha started a relationship with him. Lucas just wasn't there. And it sounds like when he was there, he wasn't really there. He's George Lucas. He took his work home with him. He was miserable. Making movies is the most horrible experience of his life three times in a row. And yeah, he was just kind of obsessed with getting Lucasfilm up and going, getting the ranch up and going. So eventually, yeah, that took their took its toll on their relationship. June of 1983, one month after Return of the Jedi came out, they called staff into their office. They held hands and they told staff that they were separating. Amanda was split between Marsha and George Lucas. And then for a long time, you know, kind of after Jedi, you don't really hear too much from George Lucas. He'd show up every once in a while at the opening of like Star Tours or something, or like, you know, Labyrinth coming out or something. It's me. George Lucas, creator of the Star Wars movies, which are some of the biggest grossing films of all time, just announced that the remaining storylines are in the works. Well, there are nine floating around there somewhere. And I'll guarantee you that no. three are pretty much uh, organized in my head. And there's a lot of notes on But the other three are uh, kind of out there somewhere. You gotta wonder. How much then of Anakin's story that ended up in the prequels, the sense of loss, regret, failure, fear of loss, fear of losing his wife, how much of that was Lucas writing from himself? Oh, yeah, totally. I think I think that's, if anything, one of the sad things of people not necessarily knowing more about Marsha and, and kind of their whole relationship is it's totally Anakin in the prequels of Lucasfilm and building the ranch and building the building a literal empire which he always said he was building for their family and he was building it for her so that they could take it easy if she wanted to be an editor she could just edit at Skywalker she wouldn't have to fly up to LA or go to New York and it was all for her and before it got to be done and be for her she just had enough because he turned into this the dark side who was just totally focused on his work i can't see the prequels any other way than it's yeah the original trilogy was young george lucas cruising in modesto and the prequels is married movie making lucas trying to rule the universe with his wife by his side and end up destroying his relationship her influence on the original trilogy was purely creative but her she was like a, a force ghost looming over the the prequel saga you got to wonder, too, if it was in in his head while he was writing it, if, you know, he heard her saying, 
you've got to make it more human and right from what you know. You know, it almost relates back to a couple weeks ago when we were talking about George Lucas and love. You know, that's what uh, that Marion, you've got to write from your heart. I'll try. Right. You know, not even mentioning the second Ewoks film, Ewoks, the Battle for Endor, which opens up with a whole family being killed. Giant monsters on Endor showing up and killing an entire family. And then the young girl is like, well, I guess I'm just going to live with the Ewoks now because my parents are all dead. In the Lucas book, there's a quote with... uh when they're making this the second Ewok movie, Lucas, who apparently never seemed content with a sequel unless it was darker than its forebear, had also told the Wheats, "I want this to be all about death." <laughs> so that that was his direction for the second Ewok movie. Uh, George, we're making a movie about teddy bears. Oh, death! <laughs> it was his, his black metal phase. <laughs> yeah. Only the blackest. <laughs> Blah. Marsha did not continue as an editor. Um, She eventually had a child with Tom Rodriguez. They later got divorced. But at USC, there is the Marsha Lucas Post-Production Building, which is the premier editing facility at the prestigious school for filmmaking, USC. So her legacy lives on, at least in that way. And, you know, her importance for what we know as Star Wars continues to be downplayed, but so much of what can, you know, what makes Star Wars, Star Wars to so many people and what they try and emulate in the, the sequel films. So much of the heart of Star Wars, the humor, the lightness that a lot of that came from the young son hero of Star Wars, probably Marsha Lucas. Yeah. I think that's a good point that the, you know, we've said it before the, the prequels are, it's like THX 1138. It's pure Lucas. It's like, 80% cocoa, dark chocolate. Like if you like it, it's good stuff. But if, you know, to the average person, I can totally get like, that's way too bitter for uh, normal people to eat. And Marsha was that. Yeah. The, the, the cream and sugar that made it palpable to regular people. And the, the sequel trilogy seems to kind of with uh, Kathleen Kennedy, there, kind of bringing back some of the, the humanness that maybe is missing from the prequels. You mean, think about George, like, um, infamous Charlie Rose interview when they were asking him, like, so what do you think about Force Awakens? And it's like a breakup. Here's the rules of the breakup. You don't go to their house. You don't call them. He was mad. Like, he was fired up. And I think all of that touched a nerve. And it really does come down to uh, a simple rule of life, which is when you break up with somebody, the first rule is no phone calls. The second rule, you don't go over to their house and drive by to see what they're doing. The third one is you don't show up at their coffee shop or the things where you're going to burn it. You just say, no, gone, history, I'm moving forward. Because every time you do, and, you know, we all learn this from experience, every time you do something like that, you're opening the wound again. And it just makes it harder for you. You have to put it behind you, and it's a very, very, very hard thing to do. But you have to just cut it off and say, okay, end the ballgame. i got to move on. And everything in your body says don't. You can't. Marsha was the only person that could make him raise his voice. Well, in that Charlie Rose interview, he was, like, raising his voice. I remember watching that being like, Mr. Lucas, you just need to calm down. I think J.J.'s just trying to make a good movie, and you, you should just relax a little bit. It's unfortunate that she's kind of been, in a way, erased from official Lucasfilm stuff. You can kind of see where Lucas is coming from. Like anyone that's had a bad breakup or a divorce, like it's very painful and he probably doesn't want to hear about it all the time. And at the time they got divorced, they just kind of got Lucasfilm and the ranch and everything going. And he ended up paying, you know, half of his money to her, which kind of made Lucasfilm kind of start over as far as building up enough money to be the thing that they are. So he had some bad, some bad feelings, but it seems like maybe there's a silver lining that they've maybe aren't as mad at each other as they used to. Cause when they talked to Marsha at, uh, was it the 40th anniversary party? Yeah. So May 27th, 2017, the old location where ILM first got started was the big ILM and 
early days of Lucasfilm reunion for the 40th anniversary of Star Wars. And, you know, all, you know, Phil Tippett and Richard Edlund and, you know, Dennis Murin and all those goofballs were there. But probably the biggest surprise was that Marsha Lucas showed up and supposedly she gave a speech to the to the group and she started to cry. You know, and you you had people there saying that she was the heart and soul of Lucasfilm. And well, and she there's a the video clip of her. She seems to be in good spirits and doesn't seem like there's any ill will with Star Wars. And, you know, they're both in their 70s now. I got to think that they don't hate each other like they used to. (laughs) I hope not. But I do wonder if someday in the dark times after Mr. Lucas passes away, if uh, Kathleen Kennedy's still around, if they'll they'll do something to kind of honor Marsha a little bit more than has happened in the past. Maybe just put a photo of her up in the hallway of Lucasfilm. But then what if George comes to visit? Oh, no. Uh-oh. Well, if they just draw a Jawa in the corner of her picture, right? Then he'll be like, <laughs> I like this picture. Fabul- fabuloso. I'm sure love those little Jawas. If you're interested in finding out more, I mean, if you, there's not a lot out there, but if you do some digging, uh, Find a little bit about the mysterious Marsha Lucas. So, Marsha Lucas, we salute you wherever you are and your contributions. Making Star Wars sweet. as she was beautiful. Here they come! A gentle princess who could handle a blaster with the best of them. But all she had to do to save the Rebel Alliance was escape from the Death Star. Princess Leia was running out of time. Princess Leia is back. Star Wars is back. Star Wars. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Hello, uh, this is Jerome St. John Blake. Um, I played Masamida, Rune Harko, Oberansesis, and a few other guys in the Star Wars prequel trilogy. And I'm standing here with Gabe from Blast Points Podcast and uh, looking forward to my debut appearance on his show. Watch this space and may the force be with you. And these last points, too accurate for sand people. Only Imperial stormtroopers are so precise. Right, so same as always, iTunes reviews. Leave one after you're done listening to this. If you're listening on iTunes, head over there, write something awesome. If you do that, we're going to read it on an upcoming show. We've gotten a bunch of great ones in the last few weeks, which we can't wait to read on an upcoming show. And we will, I promise. Don't forget to go to BlastPointsPodcast.com where you can get t-shirts, listen to theme music, uh, check out Jason's awesome Rebels reviews for the our last few Rebels episodes. Oh, Rebel, Rebels been turning up the heat lately. If you watch it on your iPad, you got to put oven mitts on. <laughs> or you're going to get burned. Check us out on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and wherever you can get a podcast. We should be there. So keep on listening. And if you have an Amazon Alexa device... If you put the Stitcher thing on your Alexa, you can say to it, Alexa, play Blast Points via Stitcher, and it'll start playing. It's amazing. We're living in the future. It's like having your own little astromech. But that about wraps up episode number 112 here. We'll be back next week with another all-new episode. Yes. (laughs) All right. Thanks for listening, folks. See you next week.
Bye-bye. May the force be with you. Goodbye, old friend. May the force be with you. A funny story, though. I mean, George, I had been in Los Angeles working with Scorsese, and George was at a studio in Hollywood, and they were doing the European dubs of the movie for the European for foreign language. And we were hungry, and we'd finished our day, and we wanted to get something to eat. So we decided we would go to the Hamburger Hamlet on Hollywood Boulevard, because they had made great burgers, and we were leaving the next day to go on vacation. We didn't love to be around during the press junkets. Anyway, long story short, we were sitting in the Hamburger Hamlet having our burgers, and across the street was Grauman's Chinese Theater, and in Grauman's Chinese Theater, all these limos were lining up. Well, what's going on over there? And we didn't know. I mean, George didn't know. I didn't know. Nobody knew that Star Wars was opening at Grauman's Chinese, and we said, but it's Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> and look I, at the line. <laughs> yes, all these people want to go see this film. And all these people in limousines. What are these limousines doing at Star Wars? <laughs> it was really fun. It was really fun. May the force be with all of you. <laughs>